Are you on a product team or a feature team? After you listen to our interview with Marty Kagan, legendary product management guru, author, and partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, you'll know just where you stand and how to become a product team leader if you aren't already one. We also discuss why product management is misunderstood, the dual track agile process, discovery sprints, and the four types of prototypes that Marty has classified, including user, feasibility, live data, and hybrid prototypes. Get ready to turn your feature team into a product team with some help from Marty Kagan. Thanks for listening. Marty Kagan, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. It's a treat to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Your influence in product design is is pretty huge. You and your team at Silicon Valley Product Group have helped companies from Amazon to Zendesk and everything in between. And we want to talk a bit about product, product management, and how that fits into design as well. But maybe we could start by learning a little bit about your background, your origin story. You've certainly been in the industry for a long time and have seen a lot of things. So could you tell us a little bit about your origin story? Well, I started as an engineer in the era of desktop computing and client-server software. So this was before the internet, but it was perfect time for that wave of personal computing. And uh, I wrote software then for about 10 years. And then I got very interested in the rest of product, basically, you realize that engineering is not enough, that you really have to make sure you're building something worth building. And that really led me into product management and product design. In truth, I was at HP Labs, and they were an early leader in design. They had Mm -hmm. some pretty decent practices then. Of course, it was a lot of devices so and hardware, so there was industrial design played a big role. But they had early interaction design. They certainly had visual design. They had user research. They had a lot of the pieces there. But they also were pretty primitive in terms of product management side, as was most people, even in the best companies. But there was actually one guy there who had spawned off four different product divisions at HP, and he agreed to coach me on product. Mm. That led me sort of down this other path. A lot of engineers get into product because they're frustrated with the product people. Mm-hmm. And I would have just, that's, that was the path I took. Um, today, of course, there are many paths into product and they all come with their own strengths and weaknesses. Just sure. like mine, I, I had some pretty big weaknesses, but that's what this guy was helping me with. And anyway, I got very lucky because Netscape was getting started. The internet was starting. As you know, probably Netscape was the original internet company. So all of a sudden, tech product teams, well, they move front and center, really. Companies realized this is a gold rush kind of time. Everybody wanted mm-hmm. to rush in, but lots of things were changing in how we built software, especially. And things were changing as far as how we build, how we distribute, how we update. Everything was changing, really. And so I, I got to have a ringside seat to those changes and just works with some brilliant people that I learned tremendous amount from and loved it actually. And I'd still be there, but eventually we lost the browser wars to Microsoft and we ended up, most of us sort of scattering. I ended up joining a young eBay, which was Mm -hmm. the early marketplace and one of the first real applications getting traction on the internet. 
And I was brought on, they already had engineering really going, but I was brought on to build out their product and user experience design organizations to hire those skills and, and show them the latest techniques. And so that was a great experience because that was my first introduction to marketplaces. Mm. Uh, they were really the first sort of large scale marketplace and lots of learnings with different kinds of communities. So a whole different set of things you learn. And then after that, I started Silicon Valley Product Group uh, with just a few friends. And we just wanted to work mostly with startups and growth stage companies. And so we've been doing that for quite a while now, like 15 years. So yeah, that's what I do. That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about that transition because you had been at HP, Netscape, eBay, eBay for maybe a year and a half. And then there's a transition starting your own company. At that point, did you feel like you kind of understood how product teams worked and had a sense for what was broken? Did you have, did you leave to start this new company with a mission or was there something personal behind that? There were two things. One is I wanted to write. I felt like I had quite a few stories to tell from those three experiences. But the other thing was I was already really started at Netscape, to be honest, but all through the time at eBay, I was in contact with friends that had left mostly eBay, but uh, sorry, Netscape and some though eBay, early eBay. And they went to other companies like Google and Amazon, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter were later, but they go off to these companies and they were calling and asking about things that we had sort of figured out at the Netscape time. And so I realized that that wasn't being shared. There wasn't, it wasn't taught in universities. It was just not really covered. So I thought, well, I, I want to go spend time with those teams. And plus I love working with startups and because those companies had been there, I was there in the right time. I was able financially to do that. And I've been doing it ever since. So Marty, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the definition of a product manager. Cause I think there's a fair bit of confusion around it. I know certainly my students in the product design program often end up in, as, as product managers at some point in their career, but coming out of undergrad, they don't really have a concept for what it is. So maybe you could talk about what, what is it and what are some of the common confusions around it? There's no question, especially when you talk about product management versus product design, there's a tremendous amount of confusion out there. I think I understand the root of that confusion. It doesn't make it any easier, but it, I think I understand the root, but kind of non-trivial to describe. The way I describe it currently, and I feel like I'm always getting closer, but it's still a tough topic, is that fundamentally there's two kinds of product teams. There's really three kinds, but in that third kind, you don't need product managers or designers. They're just basically developers, you know, cranking out code. And those are delivery teams. Those are not really relevant to your question, real product and design. But when it comes to real product teams, also known as squads, right, where you have some sort of product manager, some sort of designer, and a set of engineers, then it turns out there's two very different styles of those teams. Most of them, unfortunately, most of them are what I call, I've really come to call feature teams. They are just there to design and build features that the executives usually are the ones coming up with. You can tell them because everything's driven by a roadmap. There's some roadmap of features and projects, and it's got a bunch of features listed there. It's got a bunch of dates, you know, that people hope for. 
And they're just told, you know, as fast as you can. In that model, of course, the designer does some design. There's not really room, if we're speaking honestly, for user research, but there is some room to do a little design and maybe a little usability testing and then code and deliver. But in that model, first of all, there really isn't product management. There is project management. So most of the product managers out there, people with the title product manager, I try to explain to them they're really project managers. And I also argue that in that model where the designers are given a list of features to build, it's pretty hard to attract good designers to work in that model. They know that that's not really what they trained for. <laughs> and they're really overqualified just to, to do that, to apply the patterns that the company has, apply the company style guide. And they can do it, don't get me wrong. And sometimes it's still non-trivial, but it's not really the power of design or certainly product. And I would also argue the same is true for engineers. They are just there to implement. They are not there to invent. Now, on the other hand, the good product teams I see consistently, they look the same again. They have a product manager, designer, and engineers, but now they're really doing product and they're really doing design. So in this case, instead of being given a roadmap, they're being given problems to solve. They're usually customer problems. It's okay if they're business problems, but they're problems is the point. they are things that need to be done. It might be finding a way to reduce customer churn. It might be finding a way to grow faster. Mm -hmm. It might be finding whatever we need to do to make this product successful in a new country like China or Japan. Or it might be a redesign, you know, where we are basically have a bunch of unsatisfied customers and we're trying to make them a lot happier. But it's like that. And in that model we actually do need a product manager. That's actually where real product management came from, that model. In that model, the product manager has to make sure that the solution that we build is something that a customer will actually buy, valuable, and it's viable. It works for the different dimensions of our business. It's legal, it's ethical, it's profitable, if that's the goal there. It's something we can certainly afford. It's something we know how to market, we know how to sell. It's compliant with all relevant uh, rules and regulations. So that's hard, just to be clear. And that's the real job of a product manager. Now, it's also true that in that model, you need a serious designer as a partner. Because now we're not just, you know, sketching out a feature. What we're actually doing is trying to come up with a solution. And it's wide open. We need a designer now that can help us really understand the parameters and the constraints. And they're very heavily prototyping. That's a big difference in a true product team versus a feature team. They have to prototype because they have to figure out solutions that work. So with the designer and with the engineers, now we're trying to come up with a solution that's valuable, usable, feasible, and viable. And that's what I would argue real product team does. That's what I call an, a an empowered product team. Mm. They're empowered to figure out the way, right way to solve that. Now, your original question was kind of getting at this sort of job ambiguity that designers have. So when you have a feature team, and essentially what you have is a project manager, a lot of the time the designer is kind of forced to step up and play more of that product role. And that's one source of this confusion. The second is, if you're in a company that's a good product company that expects a real product team and the product manager on your team is not up to the level that's needed, then very often either 
the product designer or often the tech lead has to step up and fill in that role. But I would say those are, those are both exceptions. In a good product company, it really does depend on a capable designer. And when I say capable designer, I really mean somebody skilled in service design, interaction design, visual design, and user research. Strong engineers that are not just there to implement, but also there to invent, to discover. And a capable product manager, competent product manager, which is a whole other discussion. It's uh, yeah, it's a very hard job in and of itself. In order to come up with something that's valuable and viable, you really have to have a deep understanding of your customers and how they make purchase decisions. And you have to have a very deep understanding of the data that's generated. You have to have a very deep understanding of how your business works, all the different stakeholders and what they're concerned about, what the constraints are, what the business constraints are. And you have to have a good understanding of the industry you're trying to compete in. What's the competitive landscape? What are the major trends? So that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I try to point out to people that if you are a real empowered product team, it is very rare to find a designer that can cover the design and the product management. That is, that's like two massive too jobs. Much. Yeah. So, um, it really does take those skill sets. And I, don't, don't get me wrong, it's not impossible. I even could name a few people that are true unicorns that do the whole thing. But I will tell you, they work nonstop. It's just brutal amount of hours. There is some synergy, obviously, if you can be responsible for more than one of those. But it's just a lot of efforts. Marty, I'm curious when you go into companies and you see a situation where it's a feature team and it's a team that's not empowered the way that they need to be, and that's impacting innovation, it's impacting process, it's impacting ship times, all kinds of different uh, morale. Yeah, morale, all kinds of things. What's step one to shift that from a feature team model to the model above that where it's an empowered team? And of course, that's the real question. And that's what companies, they don't know it at the time, but this is what they really mean when they have a digital transformation initiative. Mm -hmm. And you know, most of those initiatives go nowhere fast because mm -hmm. they don't really understand that this is actually what they need to do. And this is much harder than just uh, giving people different titles and checking a box. So what we need is really two things. The step one to your question is, you need the product team, the product manager and designer and the engineers to step up. They are stepping into a much bigger job. Now, in my experience, most of them, this was the job they actually thought they were going to get when they joined the company. So it's not like it's a big surprise. It's, they're more like, finally, we can do what we were trained to do. But there are some people that are just attracted to the title and have no idea what they were signing up for. So they do have to step up. For product managers, that requires basically moving from a product owner to a product manager, which is a big change in responsibilities. For a designer, it usually means in practice, upgrading from somebody who basically knows graphic design in many cases to somebody who actually knows product design and is trained in different fields of design, especially, like I said, service design, interaction design. And it often means they have to play a different role instead of just drawing wireframes or even more comps. 
they are now having to prototype solutions and see what parts of those solutions work and what don't, and then iterate. So now they're playing a much more creator role than just a production design kind of role. So it's a big change for the designers too. The vast majority of designers I know absolutely would never go back. I mean, they, this is, and you know, just speaking practically here, product designer gets paid a lot more than a graphic designer. So as career-wise, this is a much better move for them. Uh, but it's hard and they, need, they may need training. They may need mentoring, coaching in order to do that. But, uh, well, but we need these designers. Then they're truly the partner of the product manager if they're on an empowered product team. You know, in engineering, they have to step up too. But because unlike design and product where there's just one on a team each, uh, for engineers, there's somewhere between two and 10 engineers. So it's much more common that we have a range of one or two senior and the, more, the rest more junior. That's fine as long as we have at least one senior engineer that can step up into the tech lead role. So that's the first thing is the team has to step up. Once they've stepped up, second thing is we have to get the leaders to give this team a chance to do what they can do. So which really boils down to trusting that team. Now they don't have to give it a blank, the team a blank check, but they have to give the team a chance. In my experience, most of the time, the executive team is more than happy to give the team a chance. They're not really ready to give the whole organization, you know, give them the green light, but they are willing to try this out. In fact, most of them are hungry to try this out. They know that the way they were working in feature teams is not the way Amazon and Google and Netflix and stuff are working. So they know they need to change that, but they don't necessarily know how. And if I tell them, well, you can do an experiment, it's not that hard. You've got these two teams over here that are dying to try it out. Let them try it just for a quarter. And if they don't do significantly better than what you felt you were doing before, you can always just go back to the way you were doing it. Sure. But if it does go well, you kind of know the formula. Yeah. And, and does anything need to change in terms of like framing a vision for the team so they can have that agency to calibrate against uh, some, some common vision? Or is it really just to reframe the directives to that team from do this feature to solve this problem? You're right that there's more to the equation. It's If you're just doing a, an experiment with a couple teams, it's not that hard for the managers to provide them the context that's needed. But at scale, we need to make sure that the teams have that context, which is normally a combination of the product vision, right? where we're going in the next three to five years, product strategy, product principles, product objectives. Those are what the leaders need to do. And there's actually a technique that's very popular for this. This is what OKRs are for. There's objectives at the organizational level, and then the leaders provide objectives for the teams. That's where the problems to solve come from. Those are the objectives. So leaders still have a real job to do. In fact, I would argue it's more important that they do their job in a uh, empowered team model. Because in a feature team, they're basically just command and control. And it's technically, it's easier for them to just tell a team what to do. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. 
Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. So Marty, uh, this probably kind of feeds into the next question, which is, we talked to a lot of teams that are in an agile environment, and you know they often complain that they don't have the time needed to do the discovery work that they need to do. And you have this concept of dual track agile, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how it factors into these types of product teams. Yeah, yeah it's not my concept, by the way. I just uh, and it goes by lots of names. I just call it discovery and delivery. Lots of companies call it different things. But the point is, and again, just to be clear, if you're a feature team, you know this is a non-issue. In a feature team, you're not doing any discovery by any name. All you're doing is designing and building. Discovery is actually means we're figuring out a solution that works. And that also will mean that most of the ideas we try don't actually work. And we learn that before we build it. The point is just a conceptual one that are you figuring out what works before you actually ask your engineers to build it, QA it, and deploy it? And if you are, that's what this dual track is referring to, or just, I like actually Airbnb calls it build things that don't scale before you build things that do scale. Same idea. Or fake it before you make it. Same idea. It's all, they're all saying the same thing. It's usually a false, uh, it's, it's misleading. When a team says, we don't have time to do discovery, what they're really saying is they're not asked to do discovery. They're just asked to design and build. And so if you are asked to solve the problems, not just build the features, then you, this is, this is what we do. It doesn't come at the expense of delivery. In fact, doing discovery usually speeds up delivery because now there's not so much change that happens constantly through a sprint, for example, because we've already done our validation beforehand. So it's definitely not slower, but it is very different. The way a feature team works and the way a product team works is night and day in terms of their actual operation. But if you think about it, what's the job of a product manager and product designer? That is their, main, their day job, is to figure out a solution that works. And then the day job for the engineers is to build a product quality implementation of that. We each help each other, but that's the root of our job. I want to dig in a little bit more to that discovery phase. Can you talk about, presumably, different companies, different teams approach that discovery phase maybe a, a bit differently, but could you talk about what that typically looks like? If we were to go into a company that has this built into their process, would we see something akin to a design sprint or would it be some other format? Well, it's a big question. So first thing I'd emphasize is not a phase, just like engineering is not a phase, right? It's not like your developers are building code every week. 
right? They're, they're building product every week. So just like we wouldn't call that a phase, discovery is just figuring out what they're going to build in the next sprint. And so it is a little ahead of delivery by obviously by definition. But anyway, that's what's going on now. In terms of something like a discovery sprint or a design sprint, that is one of many techniques that we can use in discovery in order to figure out a solution to a hard problem. I happen to really like design sprints and discovery sprints, but I also am very careful because right now there's a backlash against that technique because people try to use it for everything, which is crazy. It's not for everything. In fact, typical teams I work with do maybe, maybe one design sprint every quarter. So it's not like something you do every day because it's, in truth, it's way overkill for most of the things that we do. But if you've got a big, hard problem, it's one of my favorite techniques. But there are many, many more techniques. And if you kind of look at what's going on inside design or discovery sprint, basically what's going on is really three things. And this is what's important. And honestly, this is what I'm looking for when I, is how I answer the question you just asked when I go and look inside a team. First of all, are they tackling the risks up front? What that means is every product has these four risks I alluded to before. It's got to be valuable. It's got to be usable. It's got to be feasible. It's got to be viable. A lot of things we build, those are not hard. They're straightforward, no brainers. Some things we build, that's super hard. Obviously, we use our judgment and we decide where are the risks. And then based on those risks, we tackle them. Normally, it's tackled by a prototype. And of course, I like to make sure everybody understands that there is no one kind of prototype. There's at least four major kinds of prototypes. And every good team I know needs to be capable in all four so that they use the right tool for the job. There's different risks, like I said, and so there's different prototypes around there. But also, we have different kinds of products with different kinds of customers. And so you have to make sure you're picking the right kind of prototype for the job, the right tool for the job. And then, of course, you have to decide the right way to test that prototype. Do you test it qualitatively? Do you test it quantitatively? As a general rule, we prefer to test qualitatively because it's fast and cheap. But that is not enough for some of the things we do. And so that's when we use the quantitative techniques. Any good product team is trained in these skills and these techniques so that they can choose the right tool for the situation. So the first thing is this question of, are they considering and then addressing those four risks before they ask their engineers to code or to make this practical for a scrum team before sprint planning. You need to do this before sprint planning, not after. The second thing I'm looking for is how do they actually solve problems? What I want to make sure they're not doing is some product manager writing requirements or user stories even, and then throwing that over to the designer and saying, Give me some wireframes. Then the product manager and the designer take those stories and wireframes and throw it over to the engineers at sprint planning. That is literally waterfall. And I want to make sure that is not what's happening. And the reason I say that is because innovation almost never happens in that model. What we want to make sure happens is the way they solve a problem is the product manager, the designer, and at least the technical lead are solving this side-by-side in a true collaborative give-and-take. What that usually looks like in practice is we frame the problem to be solved. There's simple techniques for that where we basically just know what problem are we trying to solve, who are we trying to solve it for, how do we know if we've succeeded. 
And then we, the designer will typically start with a prototype of here's an idea. And then the engineer and the product manager, at least the tech lead, and the product manager will take a look at that prototype, play with the prototype. And when they're playing with that, they're really looking at two things. The engineer is looking at one, can I think of a better way to solve this? Because I know the technology. So maybe there's a way better way to solve this. And two, is there anything in this prototype that freaks me out because it's going to take like forever to build? We want to know that right up front. The product manager is looking at the prototype and they're saying, well, is this something that we could market? Is this something that we could sell? Is this something that would comply with the laws that our products have to do? Is this something I think my customers would respond well to? I mean, that these are the things that the product manager is considering. And I will tell you, for the first 20 or so iterations, the answer is lots of no's, right? Not, it's not very good. In fact, it's very common that the designer, even before he or she even finishes the first prototype, is pointing out what a dumb idea it was, and they want to change it themselves. So that's normal. There's typically a lot of iteration in discovery. Order magnitude more iteration than there is in delivery. That's kind of the point. So anyway, they iterate until they say, you know, the three of them feel like, you know what, this is pretty decent. We think people will buy it or choose to use it. We think they can use it. We think we can build it. And we think it can be supported by the business. And then they actually go and build it. Now, if the risk is high enough, they do more than that, right? They also validate it with customers. They validate it with stakeholders. That's We're getting more into the depths of discovery. But the third thing I'm looking for is... What is success? What is done for this effort? In a product team, what's done is that they've actually solved the problem. So if the problem was that almost nobody buys this product internationally, let's say only 1% of people buy it internationally, and you can't do a viable business with less than, say, 4% international purchases, then we got to get to 4%. And that's done. Just shipping features is not In fact, very often, shipping features doesn't move the needles at all. So what I'm looking at is how are they measuring success? If they're measuring it by shipping features on a date, that's not useful. That's output. If they're measuring it by business results, that's what I'm looking for. So those are really the three things. Are they tackling the risks up front? Are they solving problems collaboratively between product design and engineering? And are they holding themselves accountable to actual business success rather than launching features. If those three things are happening, even though the company may call it a whatever they want, you know, and sometimes they don't call it anything, I know it's a good team. So you mentioned just now these four types of prototypes. Maybe you could just explain them quickly. You know, one of the problems in our industry is that everybody's always looking for this silver bullet, give me a recipe for a great product. And I'm like, man, I wish I could. But the truth is, it is a complicated. Like I said, because of all those risks and because of the quantitative and qualitative techniques. But still, yes, there are four kinds of prototypes. The most frequently used prototype, and I love them for this, but it is unfortunately not something that works for some very important cases. But in many cases, user prototypes, which are simulations, these prototypes, they can look very real. In fact, they can be so well done that you don't really have a way to know it's not real, but they look and feel very real, but they're totally fabricated, totally fake. Those are the most common. There's many tools you may have heard of, 
some of them, but that are terrific for that. That's what they're really designed for. They're designed to help designers create these simulation. And so that is terrific for a whole bunch of scenarios. We also have some things, though, that are very different, like a feasibility prototype is when the engineers are not sure they actually algorithmically know how to build something. Mm. Machine learning is a popular example right now. In a feasibility prototype, this is actually some code. It's not a lot of code, but it's a, it is some code. And so it does require some developer time. Most prototypes are actually created by the designer, but there are some uh, couple exceptions, and this is one of them. So feasibility prototypes have been around a long time. They are critical for when they're needed. They're not needed all that commonly, but when they are, they're critical to do. And in fact, anytime I find one of those efforts that everybody thought was going to be like two weeks and it's already been going four months, inevitably, they didn't do a feasibility prototype and they should have. They could have and should have known this way, way at the beginning. Very often, though, the engineers, it was already committed before the engineers even saw it. So the third kind of prototype, fabulous kind of prototype, but this is the hardest one to explain. They're called live data prototypes. These are created when we actually need to collect some data to see what's actually happening when we're not sitting down with a user face-to-face, if you weren't there. Live data prototypes are kind of special because they aren't products, but they do collect actual live data. So under very controlled situations and usually with very limited distribution. So it's not five or 10 users, but it may be a few hundred, it may be a few thousand. It depends on the scenario. These are also created by a combination of the engineers and the designer, but they're very limited. So a live data prototype might take a few days to create instead of a few hours to create like a user prototype. And then the fourth kind of prototype is really a uh, custom prototype called a hybrid, where the what you do is you look at the four risks, value, usability, feasibility, viability, you decide what are the particular risks in this particular product, and you create one prototype that's meant to address each of those risks. So it's often got elements of user prototypes, elements of live data prototypes, elements of Wizard of Oz prototypes. Each scenario is very different, but some of the most creative prototyping going on in our industry are actually hybrid prototypes right now. So those are the four main kinds of prototypes. There's lots to learn behind each of those four. Can you talk a little bit about, so beyond prototyping and understanding the problem, how do you and your team think about creating products that are they're customer-centric, not just in that they're usable, but they're actually really exciting products. They're perhaps emotionally engaging, that they're meaningful to the customer base in some ways. Is that something that you think about with teams? A lot of people like to talk about this. Here's where it gets a little muddy. There's a million kinds of products out there. The way you just described it you could is a perfect description, let's say, if you're doing a video game. If you don't have it being like super addictive and fun, then there's just, you got, you got a very boring game that's going to be what, what's called a one and done. On the other hand, if you're building online banking, you're probably not going to get people jumping up and down like they do with Fortnite. So I like to sort of generalize this a little bit and say what we're really talking about when you're trying to do a great product from a customer's point of view, which is what's critical when we have this discussion, is two things. It's got to be usable, right? 
and it's got to be valuable. The usable is the straightforward run, right? If they can't figure out how to set up a bank account or sign up for a tournament in an online game, then it's not usable. They're obviously not going to find value. But there are countless products that are usable and not valuable. So valuable is that judgment that somebody makes at the end to decide if this is solving the problem well enough that they are going to switch to it. Either they're going to buy it or they're going to choose to use it. And the value bar is what's really hard. Now, in truth, value is a function of the technology. It's a function of the user experience. It's a function of the business constraints. All of those things provide value or take away value, depending on how well it's done. So the value is more like the result of those things, but we know how to measure value. We can measure it qualitatively and quantitatively for our products or our features. And that's what we do because if it's not valuable, they won't use it, even if it's incredibly usable. And by the way, even if it's beautifully engineered, if it's not valuable, they don't use it. That is, in a nutshell, the single most common reason for failed product efforts. It's rare that it fails because it's poorly designed. It's rare that it fails because the implementation is too slow. They mostly fail because it's not valuable. And it's not valuable enough to get people to switch to whatever, you know, to get somebody to switch, it's a high bar. Marty, you wrote an article recently about coaching customer centricity. And you talk about keeping the term customer almost sacred. Why is that important? Remember, we were talking about feature teams before. Uh, feature teams, the, literally, when you talk to the product team and you say, why are you doing this? And they, the answer always pretty much the same. The business told us to. The business. And they literally view their stakeholders as their customer. And I think this is a really uh, serious problem. Stakeholders are never the customer, I explained to them. If you're an IT tool, maybe. But if you're a product company, stakeholders are never your customer. Stakeholders are very important. They represent constraints that we need to satisfy. But it really gets down to what's the purpose of a product team. In an IT feature team model, the purpose of the team is to serve the business. In a product team, the purpose of the team is actually to serve the customer in ways that work for the business. It's trying to put stakeholders in perspective. They're a lot like a uh, partner. They have expertise and they, they bring to the table and the product team has expertise, but we're not trying to serve them. We're trying to serve the actual real customer. And so because so many teams abuse that term customer, I try to be very strict about that and say, look, that is not the customer. Let's go to the real customer because that's the one. If we don't please them, then they're not going to give us the money and our stakeholders are going to be unhappy no matter what. So what does that look like going to the customer? Are there specific approaches? Is it just hopping on the phone with some customers, going and visiting them where they are, or maybe some other methodologies that you often recommend? There are many, many techniques, qualitative and quantitative. I'm one of those people that believes every good product team does both qualitative and quantitative every week. I believe that the product team needs to be going to the customer no less than three hours a week. And if you're working on something intense like a redesign or a new app, you're probably doing it more like five to 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the real question is, what are you doing when you're with them? And you could do it lots of ways. Of course, there's face-to-face, which is still great. But even face-to-face, you can go to their office. If it's business, you can go to their home. You can have them come to your offices or your lab, or you can meet them at a comfortable location like a Starbucks. These are normal ways of doing qualitative testing. You can also do uh, group meetings. You can get them together. I'm less fan of that, but that's a qualitative technique too. And then we have quantitative techniques like an A-B test is the standard quantitative technique, which is definitely testing with our customers. That is what it is. And it's got huge advantage over qualitative, but it's also got a huge disadvantage over qualitative. The quantitative techniques tell us what's happening, but there's really no way for them to tell us why. Yeah. So the qualitative can tell us why, but don't let it fool you. It can't tell you if you've really got, have solved the problem yet. We need to test that quantitatively. So we need both. And there are many, many techniques, many of them out there. The main thing I try to tell people is don't do focus groups. Focus groups are more damaged than good. And be super careful with surveys. Unless you really know what you're doing, stay away from surveys too. You'll do much better to go out one-on-one, sit down with people, bring a prototype, and do what we call a user test, which has got a usability test and a value test. You mentioned your book, which uh, was that inspired that you were referring to? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that book, which came out roughly 10 years or so ago. So the first edition of Inspired came out 12 years ago. The second edition came out pretty soon. It'll be two years. And it's not an update. It was a complete rewrite. So after a decade, I thought, really, I had much better ways of explaining all this stuff. So not a single page from the original edition. And it's all really about how product teams solve hard problems. How do you do product discovery? What are the kinds of tools? What are the techniques? What are the people and the skill sets you need on a team? Because that's really what I find the most basic thing teams aren't doing is knowing these skills. It's not taught, obviously, a typical product owner that's gone to a certified Scrum product owner class. They have no idea about any of this stuff. They just know that their job is an administrative one. They have to prioritize a backlog for the team. So this really tells them, how do you come up with a backlog? How do you come up with something worth building? In all of the teams that you visited, is there a common pattern that you see where design leaders or product designers kind of struggle to collaborate well with product and engineering or something that a recommendation that you often make to designers to help them be better partners to engineering and product? At the high level, I would say most of the time, the problem is not design, it's at product management. That is the problem most of the time. And the product design is sort of dealing with the consequences of not having a skilled or trained product manager. This is by far the most common. Now it gets to whether are you a feature team or a product team. If you're a feature team, there really isn't product, like I said. And so the product designer does what they can. It's mostly, okay, we need a feature. Let's do a wireframe. Let's do a comp. Let's put it on the backlog. Let's build it. It's more straightforward. It's not necessarily what I think nearly the power of what designers are. They're often in that model, the designer's frustrated because they're not able to, they're really, like I said, if you do user research, you're rarely using what you learned. And if you do test things, you're rarely able to actually fix those things. So 
it's a hard job to be a designer on a feature team. On a product team, the best designers I know, they're all on product teams, real product teams. And they're, they're amazing people, some of the most talented people I know. And maybe this is the way to put it. Once you get a real product designer that's had a chance to work with a real product manager, they'll never go back. They know what they're supposed to have in a partner. And then when they end up, let's say over next year or two, they move to a different company and now they don't have one of those product managers, then they are struggling. They either go to management and say they really want a real product manager or some of them are like, well, I'm going to have to step up and do more of that myself. And I've seen it, but it's, it's rough. It's not necessarily a scalable solution to it. So I think all the noise out there about overlap between product management and product design is just a very clear sign of people not understanding what product management is. In fairness, there are also a lot of, all right, I, I don't want to overplay this, but some of the confusion is actually caused by leaders in the design community because they don't actually know what product management is in many cases. Some cases that really surprise me that they don't know, they've never seen it. And what that means is that you'll often get product designers saying, look, all we have to do is take care of our customers and we know how to do this. So get out of our way if you're not helping with that. And of course, anybody that's done product at a real company knows that while we wish that was all we had to do is make our customers happy, sorry, it's way harder than that. In fact, I think the hardest part is not making your customers happy. The hardest part is finding a solution that does make your customers happy, but also works for your business. And most of these design leaders or designers, they do not know how the company's business really works. They don't know how the company makes money. They don't know what the key KPIs are that drive this business. They don't know the intricacies and the limitations of the sales and marketing or the go-to-market path. They don't know about the financial considerations. Now, of course, they're not, they shouldn't have to either. That's what the product manager is supposed to know. But if you don't have one of those product managers and the designer doesn't realize that that needs to be covered, well, I'll tell you where I, I usually hear about this problem from the CEO. They're like, we have this team and they keep wanting to ship stuff that is completely non-viable. And in fact, if we did it, we'd probably go out of business if we weren't sued first kind of thing. So they get frustrated by those non-business savvy designs. So again, I don't want to be too hard. The designers aren't supposed to have to know all those. The product manager is, just like the product manager is not supposed to be skilled in interaction design and service design. It's nice if they know, but it's pretty rare. If in a healthy product team, there's really very little overlap. It is very complementary. Artie, we tend to end our conversations with the same question. Curious what you're reading or listening to or learning lately that's maybe sparking your passions or your interests right now. I read a book recently that I just loved. It's called Trillion Dollar Coach. It's yeah. talking about the guy who... I had met a few times Bill Campbell, known as the coach of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And he literally did coach the founders of Apple and Google and Amazon and many other companies. And so uh, I really love his message. I grew up in the industry hearing his message and learning from people that he had mentored. I just think he has a lot to say 
way more to say than almost any of these so-called business experts. There's another book I just realized that even newer just came out a couple of weeks ago by Ben Horowitz, which is all about what it means to have a great company culture. And he's talking about tech companies in particular. It's called What You Do Is Who You Are. And that's a fantastic book also. And Ben has been one of the biggest influences on me early in my career. He's one of the best thinkers in product and technology I know. And he's a great writer. Very good writer. He's unfortunately, Ben's one of those guys, he's great at everything he does. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing all this great wisdom, Marty. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure.